The Capital Weekly Podcast is supported by TASSEN, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations. Greetings and welcome to the Capital Weekly Podcast. I'm John Howard and I am joined by Tim Foster, my colleague. Hi, John. And our special guest today is Joe Rodona, veteran political strategist, author, consultant, and opposition research guy. Yeah. Joe, thank you very much for joining us, and thank you for letting us in your office. We are now doing this in person, yeah. which we don't do that often anymore, so this is pretty cool. Yeah, so. I'm uh, delighted to be able to talk about the project. <laughs> really, it was a big part of my life for several years, so yeah. I'm glad it's out, and I appreciate the interest. And well, I think Tim and I were talking about you know interviewing, and it seemed like our conversation always got to murder, mayhem, and the hillside strangler, and all kinds of stuff. What? What's what's all that about? What's the connection? So how how I got connected to the yeah. story. So uh, I, I just moved to California in 1988 from Washington. Moved back to California and started my opposition research company, and uh, got hired by the Pete Wilson for governor campaign. So mm-hmm. this would have been this like the summer of 1989. Yeah, and um, and the assumption was that. John Van de Kamp, the sitting attorney general, was going to win the Democratic nomination. It was our most likely opponent. Uh, there was this semi-retired mayor of San Francisco, Diane Feinstein, sort of lurking in the you know in the wings, but she didn't appear to have you know a campaign really underway. And so I was hired to understand, get to know the record of John Van de Kamp. And, um, and of course, the Hillside Strangler case, and listeners of the podcast will be introduced to this, Don Van Kapp is district attorney at the time, uh, 1977, 1981. When you uh, say at the time, you mean at the time of the time of, of the Hillside Strangler case. And he famously, uh, his office famously uh, uh, gives a, his office famously files a motion with the court to dismiss all 10 murder charges against Angela Bono, uh, who was one of the two Hillside Stranglers. That, having listened to the podcast, that was shocking to me. I, I'm too young to really remember these this case going forward. You know, I wasn't paying that much attention to the news, but that they were going to take this off the, off the table was unbelievable. Yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a very strange decision that somebody would make, especially somebody who's politically ambitious, right? And my problem in 89 and 90 was that Vandekamp had already been elected and re-elected Attorney General of the state of California. And so this was all in the rearview mirror in his eyes and in the eyes of the press. You know, so the, you know, it's like, well, why are you bringing this up? This is from 1981. The case ended up fine anyway. What's the big deal? He's been elected twice. This has all been litigated politically, and it's all done. And so I had so my 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 job was to try to figure out how to talk about this case in the context of the 1990 campaign. And Vandekamp had done and made a couple of statements at the time. One, he had said that he had relied on his. Uh, career prosecutors for the decision. So he mm-hmm. put distance between himself and and the prosecutor. So it's sort of like, well, I was I was supporting these guys who were, were working for me, who I trusted, and so I was respecting professional opinion. And, and oh it oh it just turned out it was, you know, it you know it went a different way, right? And then the other thing he was saying at the time was that because one of the because the man who went to trial didn't get the death penalty, that that was somehow vindication. 
and that the jury sort of agreed with him. And then also there was a, a rumor that was sort of circulating that he was um, poorly staffed, that one of his key aides had left, and there was nobody around him who could have you know, helped him. And so it was just like a personnel matter or something very minor. <laughs> but, um, so there, but there were sort of these lingering questions that I had to sort out then. And, 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 then, um, and, and what I were focused on in 1990 was how to tie, Camp was running away from his own decision. And so I had to basically take this and wrap it around him uh, better, right? And so I had, I came up with, um, uh, in Washington State, I came up with a document that he had personally signed that, that was the plea that bargain. That Camp had personally yes, signed? had Vandekamp's personal signature on it. And it, had, it was the plea bargain agreement with Kenneth Bianchi that got Kenneth Bianchi out of the death penalty. And, and my view, most observers' view, was that was a critical factor in in Bono um, not getting the death penalty yeah. when he came to trial. So I was sort of wrapping, you know, my job is to wrap this decision around him and because we were going to relitigate it. And so, um, and I, uh, what I did was I, I actually, I flew out, it probably was, um, probably was a fall of 89. I flew out to Tulsa, Oklahoma and met with the author, uh, he's now passed away, his name was Darcy O'Brien, and he had written, he was embedded, he sat through the trial, he moved in with Judge George, who he knew from school, and he, he wrote the, the book on the Hillside Strangler case. He lived with, with he, Ronald George. Yeah, he really, he took what, they kicked one of the kids out of, they were, uh, he was a family, a, a, a classmate at Princeton, and so they, one of the kids got kicked, gave up his room, Darcy moved into the house, and then and interviewed everybody, sat through the trial, and wrote the book, which came out in like '84. Why and, Tulsa, by the way? Uh, he was a professor of English. Uh, oh, okay. And, and, and at this point, and so um, so I took all my stuff and I flew out and I met with him and I laid out all the things because I wanted to get his perspective on it. Yeah. And it was a great conversation. I had things he hadn't seen. He was a great guy. And he and it, it really stuck in my mind because at the as we're having having our lunch and going through it, he looked at me and he said, "I don't know how much this opposition research pays you, but you ought to become a true crime author. You kind of have a knack for this." <laughs> <laughs> and so, in a way, forty years later, thirty years later, I'm sort of following Darcy's advice. Well, your book on the Watergate gets close. Yeah, that, that was well, that's a, true crime. That, a, that, different a different kind of true crime. crime. Yeah, but. that was a different. Not so much. There wasn't much blood and gore in that one. You know what? It's funny what I remember. I covered the 1990 race uh, at the AP, and what I remember about that, about Vandy Camp Lewis, was tying himself to environmental issues. He, I think Big Green he was... He had a, Big Green, had a couple other things that he was running. It was a really bad strategy, but um, overall, he just, yeah. you know, he, he just, he had to try to make this, you know, put his policy agenda on the ballot at the same time, yeah. kind of thing. Um, and then, but this is an interesting time. So 1990 is, is almost the peak of the, you know, political war on crime. You know, crime is the central issue, you know, one of the central issues of the day. It's kind of where we're headed again. And, and, and so there was this bias among the voters that, well, the attorney general is the top crime fighter in the state. And so therefore, that you know, he, he's going to own the crime issue, and, yeah. he, and he's going to that going to be very formidable. And so this was this was a challenge. You know, how do you run against 
uh, um, you know, a an attorney general in a tough on crime environment, and um, and so that's what I, you know, and, and he had, you know, he had his by by virtue of holding that office, he is the top crime fighter in the state of California, right? So how do you deal with that? And um, and this is also an interesting campaign because uh, everybody underestimated Feinstein. They assumed that she, Clint Riley, who was her campaign consultant quit on her and said she didn't have fire oh, in the yeah, belly, yeah, yeah, yeah. which was a really awkward thing to say because she had, was recovering from a hysterectomy. So people thought that was probably the one of the most classless things one could say at a moment like that to one's client. And, um, and so she was sort of counted out, but she wasn't out. She, she really saw herself, you know, as having a, a, a continuing her career. This is like the story of Diane Feinstein writ large. Yeah. You know, don't yeah. count her out. And so she, she just fought back. And so, so, um, so what I, so, so she, you know, she, she and her campaign, and this is Bill Carrick, this is, I think, Dee Dee Myers would have been working for her as a spokesman, I think, at the time, spokesperson at the time. And, and so they get, they get, bring the issue up, you know, at the end of the campaign. And by then it was probably, probably she had the primary in the bag, but, she, you know, so it was possibly a signal she was sending to the Wilson folks, like, you know, don't mess with me. I know how to, I know how to, I know how to throw a punch. But she, you know, she had a devastating ad. And, uh, and we can actually play that ad yes, right here. Yeah. As of this point, that there's insufficient evidence to file. The day John Vandekamp tried to drop murder charges against the Hillside Strangler, the man who raped and murdered ten women and terrorized Los Angeles. And today, almost a decade later, in the midst of a political campaign, John Vandekamp, who still opposes the death penalty and who takes contributions from the Hillside Strangler's lawyer, finally admits he made a mistake. Make sure you don't make one on Tuesday, June 5th. And, uh, and so, so I didn't interview, I, I didn't get to interview, I didn't reach out to Feinstein or, or bother. I did interview Bill Carrick and he tells, tells the story in the podcast of the, of how they decided to make the ad. Um, and I didn't interview Vandekamp, of course, because he passed away. But before, um, before he retired from public life, he sat down and he gave like a 14 hour oral history, which I located and he, in, uh, in, at Berkeley. And a couple of things that were interesting. One is he kept returning to the Hillside Strangler case, and so it, and in awkward ways, and it, you could say it really gnawed on him. And he sort of, in some ways, he was sort of repeating, you know, his prior claims, which didn't hold water. So that was was helpful. Um, but also something else I thought was interesting when I was uh, read, I read the whole transcript is uh, the person who was interviewing him had no access to anything. He did not provide this person with his calendar or files or anything. And so she had to like scramble around and look at newspaper articles. And so she missed things mm -hmm. because, and it's intentional. I mean, like it gave an oral history to somebody who didn't know, who didn't have access to anything to talk about. So she, well, all she had access to was like the Sacramento Bee and the LA Times, right? Mm -hmm. And so, um, so even though Vandekamp's gone, I, I, I felt I, you know, it was important to have his voice and his view of things and in this case. And, um, and, and I sort of, you know, I don't, it doesn't hold, in my view, it doesn't hold up. And then the other thing that I, I turned up was I found the guy who was in charge of death penalty cases in the district attorney's office. 
while he was district attorney, and there was one case that Vandekamp did not run by him, and it was this case. This case. And I, in this document that I mentioned that I had found in um, Washington State, had had his signature on it. And I showed it to him, and, the, and his name is Kurt Lives, and he says, well, that's that's typed right there. That's that's the space for my name, but somebody else signed it. And it was really, it's a it's a reveal. He, so so Vandekamp, my, my, my view of it, looking back, I, I think that he misread the case. He ignored advice to look at it independently. Mm. He relied too much on staff, but maybe that was intentional. What what broke it in the first place? What, what broke what broke the what? What broke the Hillside Strangler case in, in the oh. first place? And he was he was DA then. Oh, backing up a little bit. Yeah. Well let me finish finish this thought though. Is is he thought this was a loser, that they that that he thought that the case was weak enough that uh, Angelo Bono, a jury would never convict Angelo Bono, and he didn't want to have a, a case go to a jury and have a verdict come out back against him while he was running for attorney general. And so to so to fill was, in for people who maybe aren't as familiar with this case, yeah, uh, if they're millennials or, or younger, yeah. uh, there were two hillside stranglers. Yeah. There was Kenneth Bianchi and Angelo Bono. And to get to John's question, Kenneth Bianchi was arrested in Washington State after they had gone their separate ways, and that was the break that opened the case right. up. And so, so, Joe, can you talk about that? Yeah, so the Hillside Strangler killings take place roughly between mid-October 1977 with the murder of Yolanda Washington and February 1978 with the murder of Cindy Hudspeth. And so there are 10 victims in those five months, and then everything stops. And of course, L.A. at this point is in basically a lockdown. There's a 150-person LAPD task force, plus sheriff's office, plus Glendale PD, plus probably FBI, everybody all over everything. And it, it just it, it just stops. And um, and then and there's there's nothing. Nothing happens. There are no leads. The there were no witnesses to speak of. There's there's one woman saw 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 something outside of her window one night that's about as close to an eyewitness is as you could get and uh and so everything sort of stop is a stall and people don't know what, you know what happened and why and a, a, a more than a year later this guy gets arrested in bellingham washington which is on the canadian right near the canadian border his name is kenneth bianchi and he is arrested in connection with the murder of two women who were strangled in a in a rental in, a, in somebody else's house. That was you know, a very strange situation where they the girls had a the women had agreed to house set up house house sit for a couple hours for a hundred bucks each, and instead that was a ploy to get them into this dark and abandoned yeah. house and or empty house and kill them. And within a few hours. The cops in Bellingham connect Bianchi down to L.A. and then connect the addresses in L.A. to um, to the murders, and so they almost immediately realize that Bianchi is somehow connected to this, these unsolved murders in 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 L.A. And I think the so one of the weird there are a lot of weird parts. I, I encourage our listeners if you have any interest in true crime and you have a stomach for it because it is hard to listen to in some ways. Uh, it's a really interesting story. But one of the weirder parts, if you are a Sacramento political person, is that 
noted political uh, data guy, Paul Mitchell's father, is all through this whole podcast because he was a radio reporter covering this case in depth and is the first person to contact Angelo Bono, one of the two Hillside Stranglers. And I heard that and I was like, you have got to be kidding me. It was an incredible interview. Yeah, Jim Mitchell was down in L.A., covered a lot of cases, first for KFWB, I think, the the all-news radio station down there, and then the uh, on-air CBS affiliate. So he he actually shows up on October 31st, 1977, in the front yard of a house in La Crescenta, where, which is about four or five blocks from where he was living at the time because a woman has been found in somebody's front yard and he is there at that first moment, right? And, and this is, uh, this is technically victim number two, but in a way she's, she's sort of the first time people are starting, you know, she's immediately connected to another, almost immediately connected to another killing. And so she is a clue that there is a serial killer you know, on the loose. So he's at the first crime scene. And then, um, yeah, so he, so when I interviewed him about it, first of all, Jim's great guy and he had, has a radio voice still. Plus he also had a talent for, for, for talking in a very descriptive way. I mean, it was sort of built, bred right, in, yeah. built into him. Right. <clears throat> and so, um, he, so what happens after this guy, Kenneth Bianchi gets arrested, um, and a guy at the radio station up there in Bellingham calls Jim and says, Hey, I, we got this guy, he got arrested and I want to know, you know, can you help me out? I trust God. I got to find out what's going on, you know? And so Jim Mitchell has, that's all he knows is doing favor for a friend and he gets the address and he goes to the house. And so I, this is the first time this story I think has been told where he thinks he's just going to an address and checking, you know, just, passing something along. He is standing in the house where, you know, Angela Bono and Kenneth Bianchi killed ten, you know, nine of the 10 victims. Oh my God. And, um, and so he re and he remembers verbatim how that conversation went. So wow. he told, it was really something. And, and to your point, um, Tim, about like having the stomach for it, I, I will say, you know, I'm not a tradition, you know, traditional true crime, you know, background, um, I'm a, you know, political, come out of politics and government and come out of you know, research in that context. And so I tried to do a few things that are a little different than the normal for formula for true crime with this. You know, for, you've noticed that there's a political storyline here that emerges and that's a little bit unusual, but that explains why I'm telling the story rather than somebody else. Um, but also there's sort of the formula is for number one is you center the killers. And so you start your podcast with maybe, you know, the first you know, the night of the first killing and it's told from the point of view of the killers. And I don't do that. You know, the killers, in fact, in the show only emerge as they reveal themselves to investigators. So sort of, so if you experience the story as if you were living in LA at the time, because you don't know on October 18th, 1977, who killed Yolanda Washington. You don't know that. Right. So it's not until, you know, a year later, the pieces start coming together. Um, and second is it's usually a, a very male dominated genre. It's like a lot of old, old cops talk about solving the case. And, um, and there would be like, it, it, so, so one of the key voices in this story is, um, is a woman named Elizabeth Barron. She was one of the prosecutors. She was only with the case for a brief amount of time. She didn't continue with it. 
to her dismay, but she handled the, for the prosecution, what, for the attorney general's office, one of the most sensitive parts of the case, which is the question of whether Kenneth Bianchi was hypnotized. And so she gave this first interview, and she was an amazing person. She was a, I'm going to brag about her a little bit, she's brilliant, and she was a model, and a very, very, very well-known, very highly compensated model in L.A. Her best friend was Jay Sebring, who was killed by the, uh, by the Manson family. And, um, and, and, you know, she was, so she always was curious, like, why do, why do, do you know why do people commit crimes like this, right? Mm-hmm. So, so she had this knack and real understanding about the intersection between crime and 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 psych- you know psychology rather. So, so she um, and she ended up becoming a judge, and she um, uh, you know she'd never given an interview before. And then the other key investigator was a woman named Michelle Hawkins. Another key voice in this, uh, a woman named Michelle Hawkins. We found her in one article. And it was like, oh, this is interesting. There are women, forensic technicians, who were also involved in the Hillside Strangler case. And, and it was very much, you know, what these sassy women, you know, and their <laughs> interesting jobs, you know. But she, you know, she is at, at the site of, of the, you know, the most important evidence collection is the one that is what she did. She is at a site and she recognizes that there are fibers on a Lauren Wagner's wrists. And so she takes, make sure they're preserved, make sure that the bags are over the wrists carefully, get, take, follows the body down to the coroner's office, manages the entire process, and to make sure that, that everything was collected perfectly. And she told me, told me two things that really st- struck with me. One was she said, I needed to do this because I needed to help her. And it was like, she, the, Lauren's gone, but, but, but Michelle, if I do my job right, I'm helping. I'm helping her, which was really, really intense. And she also said, when I was, you know, this is a young woman in her, in her mid, mid to early 20s at the time. And this is, of course, the target population of the Hillside Stranglers. So she's really aware that these, that, you know, women are being killed, right? And she said, I'll never forget, Lauren's hair is, was exactly like mine. Thing, oh wow! You know, yeah. um, and so I so I want to make sure we look at it from you know, so there's women's voices that are atypical, and then the, and then the question of violence. Um, I intentionally did not describe the actual violence that was done to these women. It, they they were they suffered terribly. It was these men were very very cruel, and I didn't want to traumatize the friends and family members who. Participating in the project by going through that, so I yeah. only talk about evidence that later is going to be in front of the jury, and that I think is going to be relevant. So, it's and not, didn't you say that in the podcast? I think seventy-five thousand pages of transcripts, fifty-six thousand, fifty-six thousand transcripts. Okay. Yeah, yeah. It was it, it was the longest murder trial in U.S. history. The record still st- still stands. Wow. Um, and the other thing that's unusual about this: this is the first time um, that. Um, well, at the time there were some interviews, but I, I actually was able to interview juror number one, um, who, um, tell, so I was able to go inside the jury room, which was really, really, uh, uh helpful and kind of, exp- you know, cause one of the mysteries, uh, I, there's a mystery I'm trying to solve without giving too much away, which is there's one of the jury verdicts that it struck me as odd 
all these years later, and I tried to figure out what was going on there. And so um, that was helpful to have a juror actually do the interview. And you were able to get the contact information for the juror? That wasn't a problem? Yeah, so the... Uh, so is this a secret of oppo researcher? It's just a secret of oppo researcher, yeah. I have, one of my researchers is very skilled at, at mining all the databases to get any possible phone number or email address or address. I, love it. I think this is, this is sort of the magic of yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. So when we started this, so, you know, the, so the, the murders, uh, you know, crimes occur 77, 78, and, and Diane Wilder and, and Karen Mandick are killed in Washington State in 79. And, you know, and then, so there's, there's just there's a lot of time has passed, but we, we've collected a lot of material, thousands and thousands of pages of material, some of it not available to other authors beforehand. Um, uh, and just went through and anytime we saw a name, we took note and signed that name to a, either a case or whatever. And so we were, you know, we had ended up with almost 500 names as our starting point. Wow. And of those, we could, we probably could account, we could locate about 250. And then out of that, we figured, okay, here, once we have a sense of the story, we figured, you know, these are the people that we must try to get. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's a little bit of a process uh, winnowing down. But on the document side, um, I was very fortunate. It was, it was kind of a surprise. I, I was um, the family of Daryl Gates, who is the LAPD chief, chief of police, and who wrote a memoir that talks about the Hillside Strangler case in a chapter. They had his personal files that he used to write his book, and they gave them to me. So I have Daryl back here in the office. I have Daryl Gates's personal file on the Hillside Strangler case with his handwritten notes on on yellow legal pads of what needs to be done next. So next podcast is the Daryl Gates story. <laughs> yeah, you know he's he's uh, he's his role in this is quite interesting. He at this at this moment he is. Uh, he starts as the deputy chief, and then he actually was looking to leave L.A. He was actually, he, we found in the paperwork, uh, he was negotiating for another job. He was moving on. And then Ed Davis leaves, and so he becomes the, the chief, and so he stays. Um, I have all the transcripts. He was the face of the Hillside Strangler Task Force. The tapes didn't really survive. But the, I have all the transcripts and also correspondence that family members sent to him during the course of the investigation. And it really, really, really quite, some of it was quite remarkable. And the other thing was, you know, as I mentioned that the, you know, the investigate, the task force that, that was put together was not successful. They didn't find Kenneth Bianchi and Angelo Bono. Um, and he actually ordered a study uh, by he brought in outside consultants to tell him why that happened. Why did we fail? And and I, I have that right. And uh, I, I talked to uh, one of the authors, and they're like, the, the, there weren't supposed to be any copies yeah. of this, you know. But it was private. I think th- this is kind of thing that that uh, sows internal dissension. You know? Yeah, but it you got to point fingers. Yeah, and, but it, he never. He just wanted to understand, like, where did we? You know, what, where were the? What mistakes? did you miss? Yeah. Well, and the thing that you get into in the podcast is that they did talk to Kenneth Bianchi. Yeah. So at one point, at one point during the investigation. There, yeah. So so um, when Bianchi emerges and um, uh, the LA Sheriff's Office gets the call and and starts and recognizes there's a connection here, then 
they request the Hillside Strangler Task Force files and they go to the bees and it's Bianco and Bianchi and Bianca. And so there's, there's five, and I have all, I have copies of all these. There's five reports. So the Hillside Strangler Task Force touched, touched Bianchi in some way or heard about him wow. five times. And, um, and they didn't, was there, nobody was synthesizing it. Well, it makes, uh, you know, as I was listening to the story, I thought, God, you know, this would probably be, well, could be different today with computers because if you, entered the names appropriately. You actually accurately entered his name into databases and then cross-searched. You'd all of a sudden get five hits on him, which probably would have brought him more to the attention. But if you spelled the name wrong, it's the same way that, you know, we've discovered trying to track campaign financing, that if it's coming from, you know, Robert J. Smith versus Bobby Smith versus Bob Smith, they're, nece- they're not necessarily all going to hit each other. Yeah. And so, but there's a possibility there that he might have emerged as a suspect if we'd had the capabilities yeah. we have today. So, so the LAPD street cop version of the story was that the computer screwed up and it, you know, and, and I think the computer wasn't the problem. And, and Gates's audit was that there was, there was not somebody, there was not a small group of people just looking at everything. Uh, you know, it didn't funnel into a, a one place. It, you know, it was 150 people putting things in 150 different drawers. And yeah. so it was not being, it was a people problem more than that. Because the computer system I actually looked into it, Trifer. What was a computer system a disaster? You know, because that was what the, we were real blaming the computer system. So they actually had a computer system yeah, in the like 70s? Rand, yeah, Rand was involved in it. And it actually, you know, it, it persisted in the people, you know, it became, you know, so it, it was, um, it was um, people just too many people and not and stuff wasn't funneling up um, to a small group of people who could see the connections, you know, sort of thing. You know, at, at the end of the day, do you think that the Vandekamp, the opposition research, played a decisive role in him not getting a? Well, I think he was already underwater by the time. So in 1990, Feinstein emerges statewide with a very famous television ad about the moment America meets her, which is after the assassination of Mayor Moscone and Harvey Milk, right? And that is when America saw Diane Feinstein really for the first time. And that that became her ad, and that is how she was introduced to the people of California. And the numbers immediately switched, and so she was became the front runner, and um, and so she was just on her way. Mm-hmm. But fine, but Van Camp wasn't giving up, and he was doing one negative ad after another, pounding away, and and so finally they decided they were just going to basically bury him and then get rid of him once and for all, take his biggest mistake and wrap it around his neck and do it right in public. And that's what they did. It was a week to go, and they just punched him right in the face. Mm-hmm. And, um, and you know, that she sent, but she sent a signal to the state, to the voter, and, of course, this is in, you know, 1990, you know, she's, she says, you know, I am for the death penalty. She's looking ahead to the general election. She's, I am tough. I will throw a punch and I'm for the death penalty and you can trust me as governor to keep California safe because she's running for governor. She, so. It was amazing. She actually did three campaigns in uh, four years. She ran governor 90, then she did the 92 thing, and then she had to 
get a new term on her own and ran in '94. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's incredible for me. Yeah. About. So, um, so yeah. So this was, um, you know, this was a this was a big moment in her, in, you know, her career. Probably wasn't decisive in the campaign, mm-hmm. but it was a signal that she was yeah. sending, right? And this is the end of Anna Camp, you know. Uh, up till then, it was you know attorney general was an, as, as AG stands for aspiring governor, you know, <laughs> and it was assumed well if you're attorney general, then your next job is automatically governor. And yeah. um, I've always felt that. I mean, I think it is an obvious stepping. It doesn't always happen, but it's, not always. You know. yeah, yeah. So, uh, so this the case has this is the first look at the case since the eighties. Wow. Yeah. yeah. It was sort of hiding. It's a famous case. If you're anybody listening who's from Los Angeles, will re, is of a certain age. Either they remember being, you know, a teenager while this was happening, and that is the moment where everybody locked their doors. People were very, very frightened. The was I was reading, you know, about how the shopping malls were empty at nightfall. Yeah. And nobody was going out. Um, people were, you know, buying tear gas. You could, you know, taking self-defense classes. People would wait in their cars until their husbands came out of their front door to walk them from their own driveway into their front door. It was very, very frightening. And it's sort of halfway between Manson and Night Stalker. So this was, it was a very big case. And it was, um, and it's just odd. I have this, I happen to have this, you know, connection to it, having had to look at it once. And I saved everything. You know, I didn't throw away my files from that. Um, so I have, you know, I have my 29 year old scribbles and my notes. And there were some really interesting things in the file, including, you know, the document that Vandekamp signed. But I also had turned up somebody given me a, a press release that Vandekamp's office had prepared but never issued. And the press release said we are delighted that the judges agreed with us that these charges should be dismissed. Oh, and so I had that, you know. And then I also oops, oops, yeah. (laughs) And then I also had an article that um, somebody had given me. It it was an article that was in the was assigned to a reporter, Ted Rorlick, who's in the podcast, was assigned after the verdicts, and it was spiked. And it never was never printed. And I have the only copy of that. I have the printout, the, the dot matrix printout version of that article I had. Why was it spiked? You know? Well, I tell the story in the podcast. Oh, okay. right? So I, so I had, so I had those the, editors. You can't yeah, trust yeah, that editor. Exactly. So this anybody, editor John Howard spiked it. Any, Absolutely. Anybody who you know who works at the LA Times will find this part of the story very fascinating. And so I tracked down the reporter Ted Rorlick, and he. He, I had to send him the article because he he had long ago moved on. Yeah, yeah. Um, so um, uh, and he tells the story of how that how he wrote the story, what he found, and how it ended up not being in the LA Times. Okay. And for listeners that want to hear that story, how do they find out? How do they listen? Uh, so uh, Hillside. So way to listen to the podcast is eight episodes total. Um, uh, you, depending on whatever platform you have, so if you're a Stitcher or uh, your iPhone or Spotify, um, it's just type in Hillside. It's it's uh, it, it, Hillside Strangler, but it's the only sh- show. There, there a lot of true crime um, off, uh, podcasts have looked at this story, and they kind of you know my my take is they sort of looked at Wikipedia and they, you know, talked about it, right? Um, So this is the only show you'll find um, 
um, that is you know dedicated to this story. And there is, with original reporting, with original reporting, uh-huh. and then also something that's really you know really different is um, is there's a, a there's a protag- an un- unlikely protagonist emerges in the podcast, and and I won't I want people to discover her on their own, but she's really a remarkable person, uh, life life changing experience for me, uh, encountering her. And having in and going th- going through this process with her, um, and it was really um, uh, really it was a shock to have her contact to be in, get in contact with her, and a really incredible experience um, interacting with her. She well, does, does an amazing job in the show. And then the other thing I would recommend listeners is um, before the podcast was uh, finished, we got approached by NBC, and they were interested in doing a documentary series about about the, the same case and so they acquired everything that we had and um, and so all of my interviews and all of our files and then I was brought on board with um, my partner on the project as ex- one of the executive producers and so I spent the last year year or so with NBC as they reimagined the story cool. and told it visually. And that is called uh, Hillside Strangler, Devil in Disguise. And um, that streams on Peacock. And it's a four episode. And the two... Is that available now? Yeah, it's available now. It came, out, it came out in August. So there's four episodes of the documentary series and then my eight episodes. And they really work together well because um, the NBC team, um, they wanted... To tell this story through the uh, through the basically the eyes of one of the killers, uh-huh. the, the guy Kenneth Bianchi, and so they uh, and they talked to people. I talked to. I helped help the, you know connect them to people that you know knew and trusted me. And then they also went past that and kind of created their own show. So. Joe, you mentioned you're going to do a live event on October 1st. Yeah, so um, on October 1st uh, at B Street Theater, um, tickets are available at the B Street Theater website. This is in Sacramento. Here in Sacramento. It is Saturday night, October 1st, um, and we're calling it Hillside Live. Um, It is a conversation um, about the show, about the podcast, and about the documentary. Um, KCRA anchor um, Edie Lambert is moderating so she'll interview me and we'll take audience questions and uh, we have a surprise guest who is uh, somebody who is on the podcast who will uh, join join me for part of the program and we'll take audience questions with these true crime uh, podcasts uh, what we're finding is after people listen to a show they they like to connect and learn more about it they have questions and so uh, thought it would be a, an opportunity to take some questions from people in the region who've um, who've listened to the show or seen the documentary, and then we have some things that were video that um, that once you see them, they're even having even more impact. So it's going to be a little bit of that as well. Joe Grow, thank you so much. Uh, thanks for joining us, Tim. Do you have anything to add, or do you? No, thanks a lot for doing this. This yeah. was, you know, I, I listened to the the podcast all eight episodes as sort of as they came out. And really interesting story, and I was very surprised about the political angle because I I just did not know that. Having been a little bit younger, you know, I was a little kid when this all happened, so. Really cool. I feel like I've had history unveiled a little bit here, you know. 
Joe Rodota, thank you very much. And if uh, my voice sounds different, as does my voice, uh, the voice of my colleague, Tim Foster, as we do Who Had the Worst Week in California Politics. The Worst Week. Worst Week. Worst Week. It's because we're recording it differently. We're doing this one by Zoom, and we're not face-to-face. Tim and I are in rooms miles apart as we talk. So who had the worst week in California politics? Tim, what do you think? Well, uh, today is a pretty weird and unpleasant one. Uh, the mayor of Fremont, Lily May, I'm not actually 100% sure how to pronounce her name. I think it's Lily May. Uh, according to a news story by Stephen Tavares, uh, has been sending nude photos of herself or semi-nude photos of herself to a politician that she had been involved in a relationship with was no longer in a relationship with and, and in acting in what he depicts as an erratic manner. Uh, she's on the ballot for state Senate this year. I'm sure she doesn't want this. I'm sure it's incredibly awkward. It's a weird story. Uh, I mean, what do you think? Yeah. <laughs> I think I love a weird story and I can't explain this one other than to sort of recount a little bit of what's happening. She's the mayor of Fremont. Lily May is the mayor of Fremont. Um, she is obviously no, no well-known local use politician. She's capable. She's intelligent. She's very attractive. But she's got this problem, okay? She's been texting top topless photos of herself to not only friends, it seems all and sundry. And it's been an open secret in this area for years. Or at least so Stephen Tavares says, according yeah. to his article. Well, according to him, um, people have known about this, at least the political cognoscenti have known about it. I don't know about the general public, but it's been known that she's had problems over the years. I think they stem from a relationship the way this news report um, described it yesterday. That story broke yesterday was that it was a one night stand with a, a politician uh, that didn't work out well. She continued to uh, text him uh, he did not respond. She left messages. According to two people who heard the phone messages she left, she was weeping and very uh, distraught. One of the people who heard the phone messages was a political strategist, a political consultant. Now, I don't know about you, but if I leave phone messages for somebody and I'm crying and weeping, the last person in the world I want to have hear this is some political pro, you know? But yeah, you know, it's ironic. I, you know, we just got off the uh, we just got off the podcast with Joe Redota. And I think, gosh, as an opposition researcher, he was probably slavering to find <laughs> things like this. You know, yeah. uh, somewhere there's an opposition researcher in the East Bay who is uh, doing everything they can to get a hold of these photos. And yeah. this, this absolutely. Was, yeah. And, uh, and, you know, she's the front, uh, Lily May is the front runner in the 10th Senate district this November. Uh, to run for the Senate seat, she is obviously knows about politics and she's she ran a good race uh, in the in the primary, the top two. She was uh, the top one, and not too far behind her was a woman named Aisha Wahab. Hope I'm saying that right. Um, so this is a race, a race a lot of people are going to watch. One wonders what impact this is going to have on the voters in November. Remember, this is a Bay Area seat, so it's got all kinds of extremes in it, and it's it clearly is a. Uh, uh, it's clearly a wealthy seat, especially in the South. It butts right up there against uh, Silicon Valley. One of the threads of the story about this was that, um, you know, Silicon Valley is just a hotbed of espionage. 
for people who don't like the U.S. and are looking for ways to over uh, to to gain leverage over local officials in this you know high tech paradise. And whether that plays into this or not, I I don't know. Somehow the mayor of Fremont doesn't seem to me to be a particularly high tech threat to U.S. security. But hey, what do I know? Yeah, the whole thing is weird, and I you know I feel bad for everyone involved. I'm sure you know. I'm sure May is embarrassed. I'm sure it sounds like she's going through a struggle in her personal life. It sounds like she's going to get divorced. Obviously, you're not leaving sobbing messages on on people's phones unless you are going through a, a horrible time. And I'm sure that Aisha Wahab doesn't want to, who wants to have an election? The, this is the topic. You know, you want to be talking issues. If, you, if you're a politician, you want to be talking the issues. You don't want to be talking about stuff like this. But on the other hand, I guess it's fair play that you you want to know the the mental state that your elected official is in, and if May is really struggling here, maybe that's something that her constituents or you know future constituents could be discussing. It's an ugly story. Uh, it's it's in uh, Stephen Tavares. It's his newsletter, the East Bay Insiders newsletter, yeah. and uh, I, I don't know. I really don't know where this is going to go, but I. I see that May has not made any comments on this. I think that's going to have to stop at some point. She's going to have to come out and address this. Uh, you know, it's it's gone too far to just so ignore yeah. at this point. Yeah, no, I agree. Uh, well, that's it for us. Tim Foster, thank you so much. Thanks, Sean. Um, this is John Howard saying we will talk to you next time around. Take care. The Capital Weekly Podcast is produced by Tim Foster for Open California. If you enjoyed today's episode, we hope you'll go onto iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a positive review. Thanks a lot, and we'll see you next week.